the absolute worst moment in Old Testament history. That moment where God went, ugh, why? Why would they do this? Why? He keeps coming back to you and going, oh, remember that day? Remember how bad that was? What was that moment? What, what, I don't want to say what was that moment because <laughs> obviously there was a lot of those moments. All right? The whole flood thing, okay, when God said, okay, I created you, I love you with a passion that you will never understand, but I have to kill almost all of you. All right, parents, you ever been there? I love you, but I have to kill you now. All right, I'll save one of you. All right, that way we can continue this thing. All right, see, that's why we had, again, why we had twins. All right, we got a bonus, we got an extra one. Okay, so if we lose one, we got an extra one. We're okay. All right, all right, so, but what was this moment? <laughs> I know that gets her back every time. All right. What was this moment? What, what, what was one of these moments? Give me some moments here. The golden calf. Yes. Hello. Do not make any false images. Now, you've got to understand, this wasn't like they were worshiping some foreign god. They were going, this is what this god that brought you out of Egypt looks like. And God's going, I just told you, don't make one of those. And you're already making one. And what I love is Aaron's excuse. I don't know. It just came out. I don't know. I don't know how this happened. I'm like, really? Are you for Aaron? All right, come on. All right, so yes, that was about How many times does God, or how many times in the scriptures is that moment brought back up and going, oh, remember how bad that was? Never. Never in any of the scriptures does God go, Remember when you did the whole golden calf thing? It is never, ever brought up again in Scripture. Give me another day. Now it's something. Now you're like, well, I don't want to say anything. (laughs) Because you're going to get me on this. What about David and Bathsheba? Is that a bad day? What's for David? All right, what's for a lot of people? The, The ramifications of that carried on and on and on. All right? But again, how often is it brought back up? What about when they were uh, taken into captivity? The Babylonian captivity? Yeah. That was, that was more of a culmination. That was a 600 years of God going, don't do that again. I, I'm not going to warn you. Well, I am going to warn you over and over and over. I'm going to send prophets to you time and time again to bring you back to me. And after a while, God said, that's it. Everybody out of the pool, all right? No one can play anymore. You're going. You're in timeout. And you put him in timeout for 70 years. But it wasn't really a, a, a day, a moment. A, a, one thing that happened, it was the culmination of things that happened over and over again. Anybody got another? Yeah, Court. The 12, 12 spies. The 12 spies go in. They walk around for 40 days, kind of checking everything out. And they come back with this report of, this place is incredible. This promised land really is all that God said it would be. But the people are really big. And I don't think we can do it. Now, two of them were okay, right? What were their names? Caleb. Caleb, and and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua came back and said, no, 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 we got to go. We got to go. All right? And God said, all right, you wandered around here for 40 days looking at this thing. Now you're going to wander for 40 years. And every single one of you that's of fighting age is going to die in this wilderness. None of you will experience the land that I promised to give you. Do you realize, y'all realize the 40 years was not the plan of God? God didn't say, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to put you in the wilderness for 40 years until you all die. That wasn't the plan of God. That was the consequence. That was the discipline of God. Anybody ever experienced the discipline of God in your life? Eventually, we're going to get to Hebrews 12 and God's going to say, you need to take it well. You need to experience that well. Understand you're being treated like a son and that's a good thing when you're disciplined. Right, Court? Yeah, you, you got the church nod thing going already this morning. All right, I like that. All right, all right. So uh, I'm, I'm going to throw the answer out here. 
One day they got thirsty in the wilderness and they started to complain and they started to test God. That's the day that's brought up more often than any other day. Any other day, hands down, not even close. You tested me at Masa and Meribah. You tested me at Masa and Meribah. It's almost like that moment that God goes, I didn't like that day. That day really upset me. All right, anybody have one of those days? It seems kind of sort of irrelevant to everybody else in the room, but you, it's like, remember when my boss did that one thing to me on that day, and you know what? It wasn't a big deal, but for me, it's that one thing that just sticks, and I can't get past it. And it's almost as if God has that day in mind on all this, all right? So look at, we're going to look at this episode, all right? But I want us to catch us up with Hebrews, catch us up with the whole idea of the letter. So review real quick. So if you look at chapter one, we, get, we start off with this thing of long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times in different ways or different places. Now, in these last days, he's spoken through Christ. So what do we, right out of the box, he's saying, Jesus is better than the prophets. The author is telling these Hebrew people, these first century Hebrew Christians, Jeremiah, great guy, love Jeremiah, Jesus is better. Isaiah, Jesus is better. Elijah, the prophet that everybody comes back, better. Jesus, better. Jesus has got to be. That's the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all the things you're holding on to, all these religious things. Jesus is a fulfillment of all these things. And then he rolls into this idea in verse 4 or 5. <clears throat> he says, For which, to which of the angels did he ever say this? So what he's making this argument is, Jesus is not only better than the prophets, the humans, but he's better than the angels. Now, in, in sort of the Hebrew mentality, what, what, what's the deal with angels? Are they good things, good, bad things? Are they? It says that the, the, the burning bush, it was an angel in the burning bush. Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel does these things. The Passover, it's the destroying what? The destroying angel. Do you see time and time again, Lot is rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah by who? By an angel, all right? Peter is rescued from prison by who? An angel. You see how they keep coming up? These are the guys. Gabriel shows up, talks to Daniel. Michael is the great prince who wars over and protects the city of Jerusalem. These guys are powerful, strong. They are not the floaty, sort of feminine, sort of these things with sort of the halos and the wings and all this stuff, okay? I don't know where we got that from. And by the way, in case you're wondering, you don't turn into one, okay? We do not turn into angels. Angels are angels. We are people, okay? We don't turn into them when we die, all right? They are warriors. They are mighty, mighty warriors. And they're the ones coming back with Jesus on the white horses. Because most of you would fall off your white horse on the way down if you were with Jesus, okay? They ride horses. They're mighty and they're warriors. And Jesus is better than the angels. Now, one thing the angels do that these Hebrew believers believed very strongly was that the message of the law given to Moses was given to them or given to Moses by the angels, that the angels are sort of this conveying messenger. That's what, literally what the word means, to be a messenger of God. And the, the law, the law that they've been following for 1,500 years was a message of the angels, all right? So we get to what I believe is the key passage. Look in 2, 2, 1. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard. Why? Because we've heard stuff from the angels. Now God spoke through his son. So we got to pay even more attention because Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. Now, I don't know who the author is. No one knows who the author is. No, everybody kind of guesses at a lot of different things. I think he's got sort of a nautical thing going. I think my personal opinion is it was Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement all through the letter. All we have is let us be this, let us do this, let us do this. Let us be this. And he was also raised on an island. So I believe he's, you see some nautical things in here, like this idea of to drift away is a nautical term. It's, it's when, you're, when you're getting into the boat or out of the boat, and all of a sudden the boat starts doing what from the dock? 
starts to drift away and you're going, whoa, whoa, and somebody like dives in the water to get it, or you, you're that person that you're on the dock and you're holding onto the rail and all of a sudden you're, you're horizontal and you're going, ah, we got nothing for you. All right, sorry, bud, you're, you're getting wet on this one. There's nothing we can do for you. So it's this idea of it drifting away. Now, can you imagine the words of Christ being right there and you just drift away from them? Is that something you do on purpose? Have you ever been holding on to the boat and going, I think I want to get horizontal now. And you go, no, you don't do that. You drift away. You're not paying attention or whatever. And you're not being careful. And what happens? You drift away. And this is the danger of the Hebrews letter. Don't drift away. Pay attention to what you're doing because you're going to start drifting away. Now keep going with that. Two, one, we must therefore pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels, again, this is that idea of Sinai, the law, the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. What happened if you made an idol in Hebrew society? What happened to you? You were stoned to death, all right? What happens if you were an adulterer? You were stoned to death. What happened if you practiced witchcraft? You were stoned to death, all right? There was a rule, there was a law, and there was a consequence, all right? So he's saying, look, all these things spoken through the angels was legally binding, and every transgression was met with a just punishment. Watch this, three. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I think this is the main question in the letter to the Hebrews. I don't want to write it but I don't want to fill in all the blanks because I think we've kind of toyed with this thing. How will we see what have we done in the modern church? Salvation. That seems really extreme, right? I mean, is church really salvation? I mean, who needs salvation? Who needs to be saved? I mean, not in some sort of churchy religious thing. Who needs to be saved? How many of you are sitting here right now going, I need physical salvation, survival salvation right here and right now? How many of you? No, none of you. How many of you are in peril right now? How many of you are drowning? Anyone drowning right now? Anyone on the verge of freezing to death right now in this room? Are you with me here? Some of you are cold. I get it. All right. But I'm not. And so, sorry. So I get to control the temperature in the room. All right. Bring a sweater. All right. Bring a hoodie. Bring whatever you want. All right. I'm not hot. I'm not cold. So the temperature is going to stay where it is. Okay. How many of you are in physical peril right now? None of you really need that. Now, here's the thing. What has the church done with the message of spiritual, eternal salvation due to the peril found in our sin? What have we done with the message here? What have we done with this question? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We've changed the words here. All right? Well, the church is not about salvation anymore. All right? How will we... Have a great life. If we, what? If we, what, demean such a great teaching, ethic, moral, what's our, what's our friend Mr. Osteen's book? Your best, what? Life now. Jesus didn't, this, the author doesn't say, you know, how are you going to have a really good life? Live in the suburbs, all right? Have 2.5 cars, 3.5 children. Get your kids into a really great school. Possibly get a scholarship for them, all right? And have all you ever wanted in this life. If you ignore such a great salvation. No, no, no. How are you going to escape? You need to ask yourself that question. 
How am I going to escape the consequence of my sin if I ignore such a great salvation? People say, well, Jesus, he's a really great teacher. He was. He was a great teacher. About what? About how to avoid dying and going to hell. You want to throw out all the ethics, all that? That's just, that's gravy on your potatoes right there. That's icing on your, on your carrot cake. The, all the teachings about how to live your life. Amen? Answer you it. All right. That's just how to live your life as one who has escaped. As one who has received salvation. How many of you, if you are on Everest right now and someone came along with a nice thing of chicken soup and a warm blanket, how would you treat them? Would that be a good thing? All right. Yeah, I'd be the one, why am I up here on Everest? <laughs> that would be my first question, all right? But if you're in the water and you're drowning and someone throws you that life ring and you go, thank you, I receive your great teaching about ethics and morals. No, no, how, how are you going to escape if you neglect? All right, what if someone comes along and you're drowning and go, hey, if you'll just swim like this, you'll be good. You'll have the, your best life now. You're going, no, 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 I don't want my best life. I want salvation and the author of Hebrews says, how will you escape? How will you escape sin? The consequence of your sin. If you neglect, ignore, set aside such a great salvation. And here's what scares me. What has the church done? What has the church done with this great salvation? I think we should all be great parents. I think you should all budget your money well. And you young folks, y'all should date really smart. Can we move on now? Can we move on now? Did I cover it? I covered budgeting, I covered parenting, I covered dating. Can we move on to something important now, please? Because how are you going to escape if you ignore such a great salvation? If you got budgeting down, parenting down, and dating down, you got them down pat. Who cares? You're going to die and go to hell if you neglect such a great salvation. And the letter to these Hebrew people was, look, do not drift away. Do not drift away from the message of Christ and drift into what? Were they going off and they were worshiping Satan now? Going to Cobb County Elementary Schools and joining the Satan Clubs? Okay, people, let that go. All right, seriously, let them have their little club. Two people are gonna show up, they're gonna go, this is whack, let's go, let's get out of here. All right, and it's going to go away. All right, I just, sorry, that's soapbox. All right, I'm off now. All right, sorry, this irritates me. All right, because I know what it'll do to FCA. Okay, <clears throat> let's be careful. What are we doing with such a great salvation? Now, he goes on in chapter two, and he's going to talk about the coming king, and he's going to talk about the perfect sacrifice for our sin. You see, how will we escape if we neglect, because I want to, I want to write this in because I don't want to see the answer. How will we escape? You ever had to escape from anything before? There's a sense of urgency there, right? Let's hope so. All right. If we neglect such a great salvation, thank you, Jesus. All right. Then he talks about the perfect king and the perfect sacrifice. If you study this thing, who is this Messiah going to be? The son of David, right? Even the blind guy got that. Even the Syrophoenician woman. It's amazing. It's always foreigners or some impaired person that calls Jesus son of David. The Pharisees never go, hey, son of David. It's always someone on the outside. And which son was this? He's going to be this perfect king and he was the perfect sacrifice. Which son of David was Jesus? Solomon? This perfect king? Never fought a war on the ground? They're silver? Ah, uh, no big deal. It's like rocks. That's what heaven's going to be like. That's how Christ is going to reign. But who was he when he was here already? The unnamed son. The one who died on his seventh day? in the place of his father who deserved death. Did y'all see that? 
get that. You got to find that in the scriptures. There's an unnamed son of David that died in his father's place because David walked away, saved. His son died. Do you see that? It's almost like the Bible was written by one guy and he had this whole plan in mind. It shows us over and over again. He's going, Jesus, hello, salvation, hello. Are you seeing all these foreshadowing? All right, let's go Hebrews 3. Let's pick up here. Here we go. <clears throat> Three one starts with this. It says, therefore, uh, therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, <clears throat> consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. And all the people in the church, when they heard the name of Moses, did what? Ooh, Moses. Moses, good Moses. Moses, our guy. Moses, our hero. George Washington. Moses. Same idea. You with me? All right. That's the way they thought of him. All right. Um, verse three. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. All right. Did you just say more glory? Jesus? This Jesus got more than Moses? Yes, we did because he's better than Moses. How? All right. Just as the builders has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant. All right, good job. High five, Moses. You were faithful as a servant in God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, which is better, which is stronger, which has more authority, which has more power, the servant in the house or the son over the house. You with me? All right, which is stronger, which has more authority to, to which these Hebrews were going, okay, that's cool because Moses is good. But if Jesus really was the son of God, he really does have more authority than Moses. He really is bigger. We can knock Moses off the Mount Rushmore, all right? And we can put Jesus up there and then we'll be all cool, all right? And we are that household, this household of God, if, if, if statements are important in the Bible, okay? If, because there's always the question, what if I don't? All right? This is what kind of really irritates me about the predestined, predetermined, everything's all set in motion, because there's if statements in the Bible that say we are his household if we do something. Not if God changed his mind, or if God never chose that, or if God never sovereignly appointed this. It says if we, if I Hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. We have a role in this thing, people. We're the ones neglecting the salvation. God is not sovereignly going, you shall neglect the salvation and you'll go to hell now. God's not forcing us into anything. That's not what the Bible says. And I'm sorry if that offends anyone's theology. I'm gonna read the Bible, okay? And I'm not fancy with this thing. I throw a lot of language at you guys and I don't get to... But hey, at the end of the day, I'm going, what does it say? That's what I believe. And, and if it says that, I'm going to go with this. I appreciate all your degrees and all your whatever. I'm going with this. Because right here it says, I am of that household if I hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. Which reminds the author of something that happened. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. You notice it says the day. There's an article, the, the. It wasn't a day of testing. It wasn't like God was tested by them like every other day. It's a particular thing. It says there was one day, one day that just got under the skin of God and it just irritated. This day of testing in the wilderness. Because how many times did God, was God tested in the wilderness by these people? Read the story. At one point, <laughs> Moses goes, God, what am I supposed to do with these people? They are driving me crazy. All right? It's that teacher with 40 little rugrats running all over the place going, I have to get a new job. All right? Because I'm going to go insane if I stay in this classroom one more minute. Right, Miss Belinda? All right? How is it we get so many teachers in this? All right. Anyway. All right. In the day of testing, where your fathers tested me and tried me, 
and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. What happened to that generation? What happened to that generation? Did they go into his rest, into his promised land? No, where did they die? In the desert. Because God said, you didn't trust me. You did not believe in me. You neglected my salvation. And you're going to die right here because I'm not going to have that in my place. You do not get to come into heaven. You do not get into your salvation on your terms. These are the terms. You want these terms? Great. Come on in. Love to have you. You want to play your game and then walk into my kingdom? That doesn't work. It does not work with our God. So let's look at this. This is a text uh, from Exodus 17. So come over here to Exodus 17. Let's chase this down. Let's see what in the world was going on here. Now, you, those, those of you that have like the nice little titles and handy titles in your Bible, uh, the paragraph headings, all right, let, let's kind of figure out what was going on here. So, give me sort of a rundown from the plagues to the time where we get to Exodus 17. What do we have? We have these plagues. Was this a good thing in the life of the Hebrews or a bad thing? Bad thing? How many times did it say, and the Hebrews were fine, nothing happened to them? Several times. I think it's three, maybe four times. Okay? Now we get the plagues, all right? We get the Passover, that's the last plague. Was this a good thing? We painted the doors, we stayed in the house, nothing bad happened to us, okay? Everybody else had somebody dead in their house, all right? This led to what? The Exodus. Why? Because what did Pharaoh say after this? Get out, get out, get out, get out of my house, get out of my house, all right? Go away, don't ever come back, all right? This is what we get, sort of this idea of apolutrosis. Y'all remember this word? To be redeemed, apo, go away, get out, move away from this place. Lutrosis is to be ransomed. There was a payment. There was something that got us, that got us out of here, okay? So this is this idea. Anybody see salvation in this? The lamb dies, the blood on the door, identifying the people trusting the blood in the house, and they didn't die, and they were removed from a place of slavery. Anybody see salvation in there? Anybody not see salvation in there? Okay, you with me? All right. That's why Jesus, it's always pointing forward. It's always pointing to Jesus. So we get the Exodus. Now, what happens right after the Exodus? What happens? Anybody get little titled things up there? Does it go well? Do they like step out and right into the promised land? And it's like, yay, joy and happiness. Is that not what happens? No. They go out and what do they immediately run into? The Egyptians go, hey, what did we just do? What, what did we just do? All right. So what happens? We get the pursuit. Please know I'm not doing this thing with the peas. Okay. It just happens to be that. I just... I'm morally opposed to that. I think it's written in the Bible we should not do that. All right? So there's the pursuit. All right? And what, which I love about this, because the Hebrew people, they're, they're kind of walking along, they're going along, they're doing their thing. They don't even know where they're going. They're just kind of heading that way. And there's this cloud of fire and pillar of smoke and all this stuff that's leading them. And all of a sudden, the pursuit comes, and it's like the cloud that was leading them goes, hey, you guys wait right here. I got your back. I got your back, because I see them coming. All right? And this, this cloud thing comes back over here and it's a wall protecting them all night long. And this fire is protecting And the, the Egyptians want to get to them. No, there's this wall. And they look up and what's in front of them? What's in front of them? They're looking at and they've got the sea. Now, I understand from the History Channel, it was a swamp. It was about two inches deep. All right? And this massive wind came and blew and that's what made the wall separate and they walked on dry land. I'm still amazed at how the whole Egyptian army drowned in two inches of swampy water. (laughs) All right, so we get the Red Sea. 
Okay, so how are you experiencing, if you're just a Hebrew, regular Hebrew person here, how are you experiencing this? All right, the plagues were kind of freaky, right? The Passover, that was like, whew, I don't know how we got through that, but evidently our God is on our side and he told us to do this, and so we're trusting in this. The pursuit starts to happen, and what do you as this little Hebrew person do in this moment? You, you kind of have a little panic, right? Amen? All right, I think we would all do that. And then you see this, cloud fire thing go over here now how are you feeling yeah it's like okay this is just weird all right because what have you experienced your entire life up to this point the blessings and mercy of a glorious god slavery and this god just showed up and started doing crazy stuff and now you're kind of going i kind of like this god but he's scaring me to death and then the Red Sea comes along and Moses looks at it and they're looking at it going, well, how are we going to get across this? And Moses goes, don't worry, I got a stick. <laughs> All right. Because how many of the regular Hebrew people saw the whole stick turning into a snake? How many of them were in the Pharaoh's courts? None. And Moses goes, don't worry, I got my stick. And he holds up the stick in front of the Red Sea and what happens? And they're going, well, we're supposed to walk through that. Because it's like that and that. And we're supposed to go, oh, well, that's not an option. Let's go. So they go through. They go through on dry land. They get to the other side. And all of a sudden they see the Egyptians coming after them. And Moses goes, hey, don't worry. I still got my stick. Holds up the stick again. The whole Egyptian army, dead. They saw the bodies washed up on the shore of the two-inch deep swamp. All the bodies, all of them gone. All their oppressors dead. Do you see the picture of salvation, our story, in their story? What are they thinking at this point? What What could go wrong now? Oh, Lord, what could go wrong now? Where do they get? About four days later, they are out of water. They go to this place called Mara. All right, Mara means bitter. Mara means bitter. They go to this lake and says, oh, this is nasty water. Oh, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. We're all going to drown. We're, it's horrible. And God goes, hey, take that tree. Go throw it in the, in the lake. Boom. All better. Okay. All right. Mind blown. We throw a tree in the lake and the, all the water's fine now. All right. A couple of days later, what? We start to get hungry. We run out of food. So God says, I got your back. I got your back. We're going to start having this stuff called manna. All right? And it's going to fall from the sky every morning on six days, seventh day. It's not going to be there. Okay? I'm going to test you and how you respond, how you obey what I'm going to tell you. Get your, get your manna every morning. All right? It's going to be there. And so they wake up next morning and there's, there's stuff on the ground. And some guys ask the other guy, it says what? What is that? And the guy went, Okay, that's what we'll call it. Manna literally means, what is that? All right? And so they start to take it. And then quail fall from the sky, just dead. All right? They're they're not, all right? So they start eating this. And they're going, wow, this is amazing. The tree, the lake, we get water. Now we got quail and all this stuff. A couple of days later, what? We run out of water again. And what do these people do? What do these people do in this moment? See, all this stuff, the manna and the quail, what's it building in them? What would it build in you? Supposedly trust. Supposedly trust. Supposedly faith. And does God need to do this? Where have they been all their life, all their parents' life, all their grandparents' life, all their great-grandparents' life? Where have they been? In slavery. And what has God said to them all this time, these four generations they were enslaved? What has he said? Nothing. God says, I'm going to prove myself to you over and over and over again. But I'm not going to overwhelm you. I'm going to leave a part of doubt in here. I'm going to let you get thirsty so that I can show myself to you. Because what happens when a nation gets blessed materially over over, over abundantly than they could ever, ever imagine. Hello, you live in it. 
Do we, do we plead for God's presence as a nation? No, we neglect such a great salvation because we take vacations and we have nice houses and we have cars. You see, the nation that's independent of its God will never look to its God. So what was their experience like? They come to this rock. Let's look at 17. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of Sin. All right, that's not like they were in sin. All right, don't get weird about that word there. All right, it's just a place. It just happens to rhyme with our word sin. Moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. All right. Our word right there, verse 2, the word people complain to Moses. It's the Greek word gongusmos, all right? It just sounds bad, right? Gongusmos, all right? The people complain to Moses, give us water to drink. (laughs) I love Moses' response. Why are you complaining to me? Why? Is this Moses' plan? Was Moses going, I have this plan, I'm going to lead you out in the wilderness. No, (laughs) Moses going, I'm not the boss here. I'm not the one who said, go this way. See that pillar over there, that cloud? All right, that fire by night? I'm following it. Why are you complaining to me? I didn't bring you out here. I'm just the the servant in the house, not the son over the house. Why are you complaining to to me, Moses replied to him. Why are you testing the Lord? It's It's our Greek word, pyrosmo. It literally means to tempt or to test. It's almost like, why are you poking God right now? Parents, have your kids ever poked you before? No. No, no you haven't, Shay, right? Mama? Right? I mean, just really, just where you go, okay, I have had enough of you. You need to just go away right now, and I need to not see you. Court, we ever had that experience before? If I eat tricks, I'm like, there you go. Just, just, you got to go away. And this is the word. This, you're tempting me to destroy you right now. <laughs> Parents, I know you know what I'm talking about. I, 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 I don't know that you're going to survive this afternoon, okay, if you keep this up, okay? All right? And I don't have a twin. You're, you guys are saying, I don't have a twin to fall back on, all right? So I may go to prison, but it may be worth it, Okay? <laughs> All right, see, I'm with you, all right? And you only got one. Don't even start with me yet, all right? (laughs) But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What did they want to do? They wanted to neglect such a great salvation and go back to Egypt. Is that because they hated God and they didn't want anything to do with God? They didn't want to go in that promised land and all that? No, they just started to drift away back into what? What was comfortable. We, we'll choose Egypt over this. We would rather have safe and comfortable and, and be nice and polite. And, and at least we had food and we had water at our disposal. Now we're having to have faith. And this is hard, and we don't like this, and we're complaining about this, and we're going to test God here. And God, that really got under God's nerve on this day. And Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me, which should speak to the intensity of this moment. Moses is scared for his life. This is not, I'm really fed up with him. No, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to survive this day. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, all right, this is when it was cool to hit the rock, all right? Another time he said, speak to the rock, and he hit it, all right? Made a mistake. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink, which is a really cool miracle if you ask me. You got a rock, you got a stick, you hit the rock with the stick, and all of a sudden water enough to quench the thirst of two million people comes out of the rock. It doesn't say it came out of the spring underneath the rock. It came out of the rock. 
Now, I've seen a lot of rocks in my lifetime. Never once have I thought, you know what, there's enough water in that rock to quench the thirst of two million people. It's, yeah, exactly. It's called a miracle, people. It's called a, it really came out of that rock. And we're going, I don't know how that happened, but it did. And to which you got to ask yourself, I wonder what the people said after this. Oh, n- never mind, Moses. <laughs> we like your little stick. And that rock thing, that was awesome. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. And God, yeah, we're, trying to, we're, we're catching on with this thing. So, sorry. But it really got on God's nerves. So much so that the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of Psalm 95 to record this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did 500 years ago in the wilderness. Because that really upset God. You tempted him and you tested him. Never, ever again should you do that. That's a very bad move. Because what happened to all these people? They all died in the wilderness. They died short of promised land, salvation, and rest. Why? Because they simply did not believe. Now let's catch up with this back here in Hebrews 3. Because there's two imperatives I want you to see. We'll start in verse 7 again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, what the author is saying is the Holy Spirit inspired the words of Scripture, right? Paul's writing to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? The Holy Spirit breathes these words. It says, today, if you hear his voice, again, this is written around 1000 B.C., 1000 B.C., right? Reflecting back on this 500 years earlier, 1500 B.C., do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said mm-hmm. to them, they always go astray. They drift away. Remember that point to the Hebrews? Don't drift away. Pay attention. Do not drift away. All right? They go astray in their hearts. They have not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Now, what do you as the author do in this moment? He's saying, don't drift away. Pay attention. Don't walk away. Don't go. I think instead of going on this whole path, I think let's just drift back into the law. Let's drift back into Jewish culture. Everything was fine then. Now we're out here and we're Christians because what's sort of the history of the church in the first century? Were they welcomed by the Jewish community? I mean, Paul, around probably about 10 years before this, is arrested and almost beaten to death in the temple courts because of his faith. All right? So what's it like to be a Hebrew Christian in these days? You're not welcomed. It's hard. It's a hard life. It's like being in the wilderness with no water. And what do they say? Oh, remember when we just went to the temple and we offered our sacrifices and we went home and everything was nice, everything was good, we didn't have to do this Jesus thing? What if we just drift back into that? Watch what the author says. He gives them two imperatives. Watch out, brothers. It's a Greek word, blepo, which means just to look. Actually, get your eyes open. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be any of you of an evil and unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Watch this. Watch out. Get your eyes open. But here's what I want you to see in the Hebrew letter. This letter is not written to individual believers. It was written to the church. Watch how many times we get the pronouns we and us and the southern pronoun of y'all. You plural, all right? You northerners, you say you or you guys, all right? You use, all right? And y'all make fun of us for y'all. Use, use guys, all right? It's y'all. Watch how many times, here's what I love about this letter. This letter is not written to individual believers to go home and meditate on and be better people. It's written to the church so the church will work together. Look around. He's saying, look around. Look around and see if there's any. Look at this. Watch the text again. Watch out, brothers. Look around, brothers, so there won't be any of y'all. You with me? Any of y'all, an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. He's not saying look inside, look internally at your own heart. He's saying look around at the other people in your fellowship 
Um, do this for me for just a second. Look around at the other people in your fellowship. I know, that's horribly awkward for some of you, isn't it? Look around. No, seriously. Seriously, look around. Horribly awkward, isn't it? You know why? Because church has turned into, let's show up, let's get our lesson, and let's go out to eat. When did it stop being a fellowship, a fellowship of believers? Is there any among you that's asking this question? This is the question they asked at Masa and Meribah that I think really got under the skin of God. The question is, is the Lord among us or not? Out of all the things, all these things that God has done, they get to Masa and Meribah and they ask the question, is the Lord really among us or not? And I think God was so profoundly offended. Are you kidding me? Am I with you or not? Have you not seen what I have done? Have you not seen repeatedly? How was it exactly that you got yourself out of the whole Red Sea thing? Am I with you or not? But here's the thing. Look around. Because there's a couple of people in this room that are asking that question right here, right now, on this day. Because life isn't going right. And they're asking the question, is the Lord among me or not? Has God abandoned me? Has God left me? And the author of Hebrews says this, I know where that's going to go. When you start to question if God is with you or not, what happens to your understanding of God? What happens to your understanding of the love of God? What happens to your, your understanding of the love of God that sent Christ to Calvary? There's a disconnect because you're going, yes, God loves me because I see Calvary. God, I'm not sure if you love me because my finances are in peril. And if you can't do this, what does that mean for me? And I'm going to stop worshiping Calvary if I can't get my finance. So your life gets in the way. And you, the church, the people in the church, start asking the question, is God really among us? And here's my imperative to you. Look around the room. Is there someone in this room that's asking that question right now? And what are you, as a member of this fellowship, doing about it? You see, we're not called to come here, sit in our nice little pews, have great conversations about useless, trivial things, and then go home. But that's what the church is becoming. Watch out. Look. Use your eyes. Look around. Every time you walk in this room, you should be thinking, is there anyone who's struggling right now with whether or not the Lord is among them or not? And what am I going to do about it? That's the first imperative. Watch out, brothers, so there won't be any of you in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But, here's the second imperative, encourage each other daily while it is still called today. Now, that's reaching back into Psalm 95, that first word here, today, if you hear his voice. So it's still today. Today's still on the table. Belief is still on the table. Christ has not come back. The end of the game, the end of this age has not happened. Today is still today. So encourage each other while it is still today. So that, again, both of these are, are very, they're, they're effectual. That word, so that, none of you is hardened by sin's deceptions. For we have become companions of the Messiah if, 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 there's an if here, if we do something, if we hold firmly until the end, the reality that we had at the start. Never again. Never again are we going to question and doubt whether or not the Lord is among us like they did at Massa and Meribah. Whatever comes our way, we're going to look around and we're going to take everybody with us. And we're going to encourage each other. Not only should you be looking around the room every time you walk in this fellowship, but you should be listening as well. Encourage. How do you encourage people? Have, have any of you ever been really profoundly over the top encouraged by someone looking at you going, the polite nod. What encourages you the most? Danny and I see it every day. We're, we're, we're taking kids and making them climb up walls and poles. But you know what? You sit there and you call out encouraging words to them. And then you got a dad over here going, 
you're a loser, you'll never get up there. You always quit on everything. And then you get a dad five minutes later going, I believe in you. You're awesome. You're going to do this. And those two kids walk out with totally different experiences of who they are. It wasn't because the dad sat down there and just smiled at him. Words. Look around. Get your eyes open. Get your spiritual eyes open to see people that are hurting. Get your ears open to hear the encouraging words that are being spoken among us as a church. You see, we can either be a group of people who walk into a building, or we can be a church. Those are two very, very different things. So which will we become? Which will we be? Again, this, is, this has its, its meaning that we can attach to it. We can say, I can be like this. But here's a question. What will we be like? And the point of the letter to the Hebrews is, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Encourage each, is there any among you with an unbelieving heart? Encourage each other, each other, while it's still called today so they won't be hardened by sin's deception. See, the imperative here is not you do it right, it's y'all do this right. And you see the beauty of what took place. And you look at your own faith and you say, never, ever again will I question whether or not the Lord is among us. Because all I have to do is look at Calvary and look at the tomb and go, that's settled for me. And then you walk into a room like this and you look around and you see if anybody else is straying from that thought of that's enough for me. And you go and you speak to them and you encourage them and you write them notes and you pray for them and you encourage them and you speak to them and you write them notes and you speak to them and you encourage them and you write them notes and you keep fighting and fighting and fighting until Christ comes back or your heart stops beating. That's what it's like to be a church member. Let's pray.